Welcome to Misinformation, the podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Julia, your skin, can I tell you, <laughs> is luminous today. <gasps> oh what are you gosh, using? Because I have been moisturizing you. like a banshee. I don't know if banshees moisturize, <laughs> but, um, and I still have these dry patches all over oh. my face. Well, I found this um, just jar up in the attic in this house Whoa. that we live in, mm. um, and it I think it has radium in the cream, Ooh. and it's really just, I, I read about all these really great properties <laughs> and how it just makes your skin brilliantly shine it and is. just like takes years off of everything. I can barely look at you right now because you are gl- literally glowing. Oh, I am. I, at this point, after studying for this <laughs> week's topic, I have discovered that I'm probably radioactive. Yes. So, oh, good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm getting skin cancer as we speak. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. So yay. Yeah. So um, today we're going to be talking about um, one of the most prolific female scientists of all time. Yeah, absolutely. We're talking about Marie Curie. All right. So our girl Marie, she was born Maria Solomea Skodowska in the Russian part of Poland on November 7th, 1867 to two teachers whose names were Vladislav and Bronislava. I'm going to be tossing a lot of Polish pronunciations at you. I feel like I am neck deep in borscht right now. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, their daughter, Maria, she was the fifth in their youngest child. Um, Her father, Vladislav, he taught mathematics and physics, um, which were subjects that Maria eventually pursued herself. Um, There were Russian authorities in Poland at this time, and they eliminated um, laboratory instruction from Polish schools. So Vladislav brought home a lot of the lab equipment from the schools and instructed his children in its use. Oh, that's cool. convenient. What a good dad. Yeah. Um, When she was 16, she graduated from a secondary school, so she was you know she was able to get a diploma in that capacity Mm. um she then spent some time in the countryside where she worked as a tutor so um maria and her sister bronislava whose uh nickname was bronya is that bronislavia jr did they have juniors (laughs) 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 because in some south american cultures there's for the on the female end there's like the the matriarchal side it's a junior you could be like and that and that's been a lot of my difficulty doing stuff on ancestry is that mm. like just everybody had all the same names. Yeah. I'm not sure that there were more than like five Polish <laughs> names at the time, <laughs> which is why this happened. God. So um yeah, at least as the youngest child she she wasn't Bron- Bronislava Jr. <laughs> so uh, poor thing. Yeah, poor thing. So uh Maria and her sister Bronya, um, they became involved in the secret flying university. What? Mm. Flying? It's called the Flying University. Okay. Okay. So the University of Warsaw refused to admit women in the 19th century. Um, And there were a lot of ladies out there that were smart. And Uh, some of the Polish people were like, yeah, we got to let our ladies learn. Yeah. Let those ladies learn. They had a secret university (gasps) called the Flying University or the Floating University, depending on what. Uh, translation you use that is so cool so with this uh the lectures and the seminars at the school were taught by polish philosophers professors and historians so here the students um, received a proper higher education and also learned more about their polish heritage free from the influence of outside powers so the russians couldn't you know tell these people what to do good um so it was actually um, illegal under the government statute to host or organize these types of classes. So in order to avoid detection, they often change location, moving from private home to private home. Oh, that's why it was like flying or floating. Right. Yeah. Okay. So it's a little bit like uh, for the Harry Potter fans out there, it's a little <laughs> bit like the room of requirement. Um, I have no idea what you're talking about, unfortunately. <laughs> I have, I have a lot of people them. that are high-fiving in the background, probably, <laughs> that, they, yeah. that they made that connection. Themselves. A lot of listeners are like, yes. <laughs> So uh, this flying or floating university, um, while it couldn't grant its students any official degree, it did have graduates and they became well known in the world. Mm. Um, The flying university actually remained in operation until 1905 um, when changing attitudes in the government allowed it to come out of hiding. Um, Once the university could operate legally, it established itself as the Society of Science Courses and later as the Free Polish University. So yeah, pretty interesting that, um, that these ladies kind of got to 
you know, unofficially, but mm-hmm. attend like college courses because other people wanted them to be able to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's amazing. Good job, Poland. Yeah, Poland. Hey. <laughs> uh, shout out to my Poles. <laughs> what up, what up? <laughs> Poles in the house represent. <laughs> so uh, after they went to the Polish, uh, to uh, the Flying University, uh, Maria and her sister Bronia made an agreement that Maria would give Bronia financial assistance during Bronia's medical studies in Paris in exchange for similar assistance two years later. So basically, like, Maria was like, no, you go to France and you learn and I will help to pay for you. And then oh once God. Bronia graduated, Maria would, you know, the same thing would happen. Oh, my gosh. I can't imagine. Like, this is so nice. My That's, brothers haven't paid me back for like a joint Christmas present we had <laughs> six years ago yet. So I can't imagine being like, yes, I love <laughs> you so much. Yeah. My sister, she, I think she gets me a pair of socks every year for Christmas. I think that's like the kindest thing she's ever done. <laughs> she and, doesn't work for two years to pay for you to go through. Like, no, secret. but granted, I don't think I would do that for her. <laughs> so shout so out this is a, mu- a much I better love time. You. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, Maria worked as a governess and tutor to make money to help pay for her sister's education. And at the beginning of 1890, Bronia invited Maria to come join her and her husband, um, who was a Polish physician and activist in Paris. Mm. Uh, Maria continued to educate herself. She read a lot of books and exchanged a lot of letters with academics. Um, She kept tutoring people. She studied um, some more at the Flying University. And she began her practical scientific training in in a chemical laboratory at the Museum of Industry and agriculture near Warsaw's old town mm. and the laboratory was run by her cousin Joseph Bugoski who had been an assistant in St. Petersburg Russia to the chemist Dmitry Mendeleev oh that's a name that we know I have heard of him because he basically invented the periodic table oh yes yeah so six degrees is separation there I mean I feel like at that period <laughs> all scientists at that level knew each other so <laughs> You know, yeah, you will hear a lot of other scientist names cool. come up. This is so. Um, when Maria registered at the Sorbonne in Paris, she actually signed her name as Marie to seem more French. Mm, that's so, very smart. Mm-hmm. Um, she had planned to live with her sister Bronia, but she took a small garret apartment in the Latin Quarter that was closer to the school, so that she would have more time to study and less time to like travel between classes and that sort of thing. Uh, Dedication, and, like to pay for her stuff, like mm-hmm. she subsisted on like no food at all like she would frequently like pass out because of starvation like like she was so dedicated to like just learning and working that she like didn't have money to like pay for real food oh my god and to think the the amount of time i wasted (laughs) in college Reading ladies' magazines and watching TV and not enjoying your unlimited meal plan yes (laughs) and not being like Marie Curie and just sticking to my studies <laughs> and starving myself. <laughs> we do not uh, condone starving. Please yourself. do not do that. Uh, so uh, Marie, uh, when she took her final examination, she was first in her class, including mm. with men. Yeah. Um, she earned her master's degree in physics in July, 1893. And women's education advocates gave her a scholarship to stay on and take a second degree in mathematics, which we earned just a year later. Wow. Um, One of Marie's professors arranged a research grant for her to study the magnetic properties and chemical composition of steel. That's awesome. And in arranging for lab space, she was introduced to a young man named Pierre Curie. (gasps) So handsome. So handsome. Pierre was a brilliant researcher himself and had invented several instruments for measuring magnetic fields and electricity. Um, He was like sidebar. He was also interested in magnetism, kind of like our, you know, Charles Darwin kind of was interested in magnetism. And he, um, despite being an atheist, was also really interested in like spiritualism and seeing like if we could actually talk to the dead. Oh, that's cool. uh, That's a little sidebar on Pierre. Um, So anyway, Pierre, great researcher himself. Um, He arranged a tiny space for Marie at the Municipal School of Industrial Physics and Chemistry where he worked and um, Lauren what's what is obviously the most passionate discipline in the world the most passionate the most discipline? passionate discipline are we talking just science yeah. are we talking no yeah the answer is science oh. science is obviously <laughs> yes because they're poets the most passionate the most passionate the most romantic <laughs> yes. I would say yes yes agreed so uh, science it uh, it brought both Pierre and Marie increasingly closer and they began to develop feelings for one another oh. 
Oh, my heart, it flutters. Eventually, Pierre proposed marriage, but at first Marie did not accept as she was planning to go back to her native country. Pierre declared that he was ready to move with her to Poland, oh. even if it meant being reduced to teaching French. Oh, that's Marie, sweet. Just oh, Marie. go. <laughs> Be with him. Follow your heart for once, Marie. <laughs> Fill your head with science he and your heart with love. Her also, well, that's nice. Oh. Um, so Pierre declared that he, you know, he declared his love for her. And mm. she, in, during 1894, she went back to Warsaw where she visited her family. Um, she wanted to work in science in Poland, but was denied a place at Krakow University because she was a woman. Ugh. Yep. That's it. I'm, a, I'm out. I'm against the polls. Yeah. <laughs> Forget it. This is going to be a real like this is be an up and down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was uh, Pierre sent her a letter convincing her to return to Paris to Purdue uh, to pursue a PhD. He wrote, "It would be a beautiful thing, a thing I dare not hope, if we could spend our life near each other, hypnotized by our dreams, oh. your patriotic dream, our humanitarian dream, and our scientific dream." <laughs> beautiful words. Oh my gosh, from this, from this Frenchman. Uh, so the two obviously oh. like cheek. You know, she she came back to France. Of course. She, you know, was mad at Poland for a little bit. I would be uh, too. Came I back to right France now. and they obviously got married in 1895. Um, neither wanted a religious service or like anything big at all. Um, so Marie wore a dark blue outfit instead mm. of a bridal gown, which she used for many years later as a laboratory outfit. <laughs> Very practical. Such a practical lady. Such a practical lady. Um, meanwhile, in science, mm-hmm. uh, it's 1895. Wilhelm Röntgen um, discovered the existence of X-rays, though they yet didn't really understand the mechanism behind their production. Um, one year later, in 1896, Henri Becquerel discovered that uranium salts emitted rays that resembled X-rays in their penetrating power. And he demonstrated that this radiation, unlike phosphorescence, did not depend on an external source of energy, but seemed to arise spontaneously from uranium itself. Mm. So influenced by the these two important discoveries, Marie decided to look into uranium rays as a possible field of research for a thesis. She hypothesized that the radiation was not the outcome of some interaction of molecules, but it must come from the atom itself. Mm. So this hypothesis was an important step in disproving the ancient assumption that atoms were indivisible. So Marie, she's very smart. She had, you know, lots of, lots of great ideas and lots of um, supportive people around her at this Mm. time. So the discovery of radioactivity led Marie and Pierre to the isolation of polonium, which Mm. she then named after Poland, um, and radium. So radioactivity exists. Here's two more elements. (laughs) Um, So Marie developed methods for the separation of radium from radioactive residues in um, sufficient quantities to allow for its characterization and careful study of its properties. And she was particularly interested in the therapeutic properties that were possible. Okay, yeah. Uh, Marie was very aware of the importance of promptly publishing her discoveries and thus establishing her priority in the science field. So between 1898 and 1902, the Curies published, um, either jointly or separately, a total of 32 scientific papers, including one that announced um, when exposed to radium, diseased tumor-forming cells were destroyed faster than healthy cells. So thinking about the therapy the potential therapeutic properties of radium and maybe shrinking tumors or treating cancer. That's really cool. Like that. I had no idea that it was that early that they so, yeah, very early. were using or had discovered radiation mm-hmm. did that. Well, um, the Curies would also kind of do experiments on themselves too. Like, um, oh, no. like one day, like Pierre just strapped a, like a test tube full of radium, like to his forearm to see what no, would happen. And like 10 that. hours later, like, Oh no, there's a really big, terrible <laughs> ulcer wound on oh, his arm because I guess when science. you don't know, <laughs> <laughs> I guess when you don't know exactly what it does to you, you're like, yeah, I mean, I'm right here. You're right, right here. Let's just do it on ourselves. Yeah. But not knowing whether or not it's going to be extraordinarily detrimental to your health. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I wouldn't do it. But they know, also definitely the like curious. carried around vials of this stuff like in their pockets yeah. and like you know in your handbag. Oh jeez, like, <laughs> <laughs> that's no good. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, so in December 1903, the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences awarded Pierre Curie, Marie Curie, and Henri Becquerel the Nobel Prize in Physics in recognition of the extraordinary services they have rendered by their joint researches on the radiation phenomena. So. 1903, Marie Curie is the first woman to receive a Nobel Prize. Um, 
We have a little bit of a sidebar here. Ooh, okay. There are six official categories of Nobel Prizes. And this kind of stuff comes up at Pub Quiz, so I wanted to make sure to include it here. So the six um, categories are officially chemistry, economics, literature, peace, physics, and physiology or medicine. The last one is one category. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the prize ceremonies take place annually in Stockholm, Sweden, with the exception of the Peace Prize, which is held in Oslo, Norway. Mm -hmm. Each recipient, also called a laureate, um, receives a gold medal, a diploma, and a sum of money that has been decided by the Nobel Foundation. As of 2017, each prize was worth 8 million Swedish krona, or about um, $920,000 American. That's still pretty good. I'd take that. Pretty good. In 1888, Nobel was astonished to read his own obituary which was titled The Merchant of Death is Dead in a French newspaper. And it was actually Alfred's brother Ludwig who had died. Um, So the article disconcerted Alfred Nobel and made him apprehensive about how he would be remembered. So this inspired him to change his will. And he died in 1896. So Nobel's last will specified that his fortune be used to create a series of prizes for those who confer the greatest benefit on mankind in physics, chemistry, physiology or medicine, literature and peace. Nobel bequeathed 94% of his total assets which was about 31 million krona or about 186 million dollars in u.s today um, to establish the five nobel prizes the sixth which is the nobel memorial prize in economic sciences was established in 1968 by a donation from sweden central bank the swedish national bank on the bank's 300th anniversary so nobel officially only designated five prizes and then Mm. the swedish national bank kind of like tacked on this yeah. other one mm. in his honor too. So there are six categories of Nobel Prizes. I did not know that he like saw his future <laughs> accidentally <laughs> and was like, oh no. Right, because he invented dynamite. Yeah, of and course. That, that's probably what he's best known for, but he he did a lot of other like, yeah. inventions and stuff like that, but people thought that that was very violent. and That's very, um to, to harken back to Dickens, it's very... <laughs> Christmas carol-y. <laughs> yes. That he was like, oh no, please let me live. Yes. I'll change my life. Yep. And he did that, but he didn't die or see a ghost or he, yeah. any of those things. Yeah. It just, his brother died and then mistaken identity. He got well, to read a terrible obituary. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> well, he should speak ill of the dead, no. but yeah. Well, In the now, end, this one worked out. Yeah. Now we have the Nobel Prizes. So uh, Night Show 3, Pierre and Marie got their first Nobel Prize. Um, it's 1906. Pierre walks out into the street on the Rue Dauphin in Paris no, and gets Pierre. run over no. by a carriage and he dies immediately what? when his skull is crushed no. under the wheel of the carriage. No, not Pierre. <sighs> Marie is distraught. Julia, I I was not prepared. You, you I was barely not, knew Pierre. I just met Pierre. I fell in love with his beautiful words and how much he loved Marie and how well he, he took was a care wonderful of her. man. I'm going to pour one out for Pierre later. Yeah. Um, So the physics department at the University of Paris decided to retain the chair that had been created for Pierre, and they offered it to Marie. Oh, good. She accepted it, hoping to create a world-class laboratory as a tribute to Pierre, and she was the first woman to become a professor at the University of Paris. That's amazing. Yeah. So she is like marking... She's pounding on glass ceilings left and right. She's just going right through them. She's the first for this, first for that. A righteous broad. Absolutely. In 1910, Curie succeeded in isolating radium. She also defined an international standard for radioactive emissions that was eventually named for her and Pierre. It is called the Curie. Mm. Once radium was isolated, physicians learned that the application of radium salts to a tumor would actually shrink the cancer. And radium therapy was introduced into hospitals and its naturally healing effects began to spread into consumer products, which we'll talk about in a bit. Oh my gosh. So after Pierre's death in 1910... Marie became entrenched in a torrid love affair <gasps> with one of Pierre's former students, physicist Paul Langevin. <gasps> the two were sharing a love nest in Paris when Langevin's wife grew suspicious and decided to investigate. Oh she hired a man to break into their flat and steal incriminating letters, which were then leaked to the press. So French newspapers wow. went after the story with gusto. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, they painted Marie as a homewrecker and a <gasps> seductive Jew, um, even though she wasn't Jewish. No, it takes two to tango, too. <laughs> also, you know what, Marie? Get yours. Yeah. All right? Your beautiful peer died tragically. Yep. Get it. Get it. Uh, again, 
they called her a seductive Jew, even though she was she not was Jewish. not Jewish. Yeah, no, we should really put a <laughs> you should really put like a fine point on that. <laughs> so this story played into the xenophobia of the time, and it mm. fanned public outrage. And the situation got so bad that one night Marie returned home from a conference in Belgium to find an angry mob surrounding <gasps> her house, tormenting her two daughters. So she quickly packed up oh, her no. family and they fled to a friend's home. So eager to defend Marie's honor. Paul Angevin challenged one of the newspaper's editors to a duel. Of course, the two men so faced off against one another, but eventually no one actually fired a shot. So Ugh. it was kind of like cowards, anticlimactic. <laughs> Meanwhile, Albert Einstein argued that Marie, quote, has a sparkling intelligence, but despite her passionate nature, she is not attractive enough to represent a threat <gasps> to anyone. Whoa. Whoa. Albert. Oh, in some shade. Yeah, that's salty of him. <laughs> what? When is he getting into people's private lives? How about you work on E equals MC squared, sir? <laughs> wow. Yep. Yep. Way in. I didn't realize he was such a yeah. shady bitch. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, Marie uh, didn't really let this bother her. So at the well, height no. of the whole scandal, uh, she won her second Nobel Prize. <laughs> And the Nobel Good. Committee suggested that she skip the award ceremony, like, you know, to kind of cut down on publicity or this mm. coming back up in the news. And she went anyway. She Good. was like, mm, whatever. I earned this. Yeah, absolutely. She's so cool. that was 1911. Okay. So um, after 1911, what big event are we getting into next? Oh, we're getting into the Great War. Yes. So uh, during the First World War, the French government called for gold for the war effort. So Marie showed up at a bank with her Nobel Prize medals ready to donate them to the war effort. Uh, when bank officials refused to melt them down, she donated her prize money to purchase war bonds instead. Um, Marie realized that she could use like her science to yeah. help out, though. Um, she said, well, if wounded soldiers have a better rate of survival uh, when they can be operated on sooner than later... She thought she could use her experience with x-rays to help detect metal in the wounds of soldiers. Oh, that's cool. So she convinced the French government to name her the director of the Red Cross Radiology Service, even though nobody knew what radiology was at the time. <laughs> they just, fine, leave us alone. <laughs> Go ahead. Marie. Um, then she called upon her richest and most powerful friends and got them to donate money and vehicles to support her idea. So what she wanted to do late October of that year, she gave herself a crash course on x-ray technology along with human anatomy. She also learned to drive and mastered basic auto <laughs> mechanics <laughs> so that she could have a traveling x-ray unit, aka this is like a really early ambulance. Wow. So she had a traveling x-ray unit, um, which formed the foundation for what the military called petite curies. So she equipped a van with a generator, a hospital bed, and x-ray equipment. Uh, and she and her 17-year-old daughter, Irene, drove directly onto the battlefields and examined the wounded. These battlefield x-rays helped medical surgeons locate shrapnel and bullets, but the men in charge were still skeptical of this new technology. Ugh, so Marie gave a crash course in x-rays to 150 women who offered to help use yeah. these petite curies on the wounded. And in total, her little wartime project enabled more than a million soldiers to be administered x-rays. That's amazing. Yeah. That's just amazing. Getting out there, doing what she could with her brain. With her and enormous didn't brain. And let people tell her no. And then when men were like, You're, that's dumb. She was like, that's it. I'm rounding up all my ladies and I'm going to teach them how to do this very scientific thing in your faces. Exactly. That's so fling and flang and cool. Julia, <laughs> she's the best. Um, after the war, she worked hard to raise money for her Radium Institute, including a trip to the United States. Um, and so she came here in the U.S., you know, she was applauded and mm. applauded and congratulated. And the U.S. presented her with like a gram of radium that was in like a big honking suitcase and lead lined suitcase because people started to have some ideas that maybe <laughs> handling radium wasn't that great. Oh, good. Oh, but we'll yeah, get there. Finally. Um, just a, another little... <laughs> character information about Marie. Mm. She loved pranks. But she loved <laughs> but they were like really mild pranks, like like Winston on New Girl type pranks. Oh, okay. <laughs> They're just like it's not it's not really it's a just good more prank. confusing than yeah. hilarious. Uh noticing that a relative of hers drank copious amounts of milk every day, Marie slowly thinned it out over time <laughs> until he noticed. <laughs> Got you. Gotcha. I got you. It's um, been 12 weeks and you're now you're drinking just mostly just water. water. It's 
skim milk. It's <laughs> water that's lying about being milk. Well, she can't be, you know, she can't be hilarious and brilliant. Right, that's true. It would really know. like undermine her credibility yeah, exactly. in the world. Um, I mean, God bless her. Another, but. another prank, uh, Marie and her cousin once nailed a relative's furniture and shoes to the ceiling. <laughs> what? I got you. <laughs> so. Marie Curie's uh, book o pranks. <laughs> it was not a bestseller. <laughs> they were like, please publish some more articles yeah. about, about these chemicals. Enough instead. with pranking Thanks. the Uncle John's bathroom reader of, <laughs> <laughs> of 20th century France. Oh. Anyway. Well, by 1920, Marie, our poor Marie, she was suffering from medical problems. Of course. Likely due to her exposure to radioactive materials. Um, on July 4th, 1934, she died of aplastic anemia, which is a blood disease often caused by too much exposure to radiation. Um, again, she had carried test tubes containing radioactive isotopes in her pockets and she stored them in her desk drawers and she oh had gosh. them like all around her house. Um, she was also exposed to x-rays from unshielded equipment while mm. serving as a radiologist yeah. <laughs> during the first world war. Um, and although for many decades of exposure to radiation caused chronic illnesses, um, including near blindness, um, and ultimately her death, she never actually acknowledged the health risks of radiation exposure. Wow, really? That's interesting. So it was like her beloved radium. Yeah, of that course. couldn't have been doing this to her. Um, and there were there are people that uh, say that Pierre when he you know he was crossing the street and got hit by a carriage he actually like stumbled into the street and it could have been oh. due to some sort of um side effect from being exposed to all this radiation and stuff just like kind of messing with your body i guess so. yeah so um let's see marie um Pierre and Marie had two daughters, mm. Irene uh, Julio Curie, who married the physicist Frederic Julio Curie. And he hyphen they hyphenated their last names, which was nice. So modern. Nice. Um, and Eve Curie Labousse, um, who Eve was the only one in the family who did not become a physicist, but worked for UNICEF with her husband, Richard Labousse. Um, so in that family, there was one Nobel Prize to Marie and Pierre, one to just Marie, one to both Irene and Frederic, and one to Eve's husband, Richard. So that's a total of five Nobel oh Prizes gosh. within like one immediate family. Yeah. Oh my God. Can you imagine being like the grand daughter of Marie Curie and everyone everyone literally in your family has a Nobel Prize what some that is she such has, a thing um, to live there are up two to. grandchildren of hers that are still alive and they both teach in Paris at you know some of the universities there that's great yeah they're oh my God. yeah kicking ass um so Marie died in 1934. Um, 60 years later, in 1995, in honor of their achievements, the remains of both Marie and Pierre Curie were transferred to the Pantheon in Paris. Mm -hmm. And she became the first woman to be honored with interment in the Pantheon on her own merits. That's which wonderful. Is really sweet. So, again, to reiterate, Marie Curie was the first woman to win a Nobel Prize, the first person to win two Nobel Prizes. Wow. The only woman to win in two fields. She won in physics in 1903 and chemistry in 1911, and the only person to win in multiple sciences. The element with atomic number 96 was named curium in mm. honor of Marie and Pierre, and three radioactive minerals are also named after the Curies, curite, sklodoskite, and kuproskodoskite. <laughs> yep. You're welcome. <laughs> I'll I'll remember that. So, um, Marie Curie is one of Poland's most celebrated cultural icons. Now she's celebrated. Yeah. Other famous Poles include Nicholas Copernicus, mm, Pope yes. John Paul II, love PJP, Frederick Chopin. Frederick Chopin. We saw him at yeah. the the Polish festival. Yeah. <laughs> he was he was not alive. No, just to. Just to confirm for our listeners, it was yeah. a there was a, <laughs> it was it was not the reanimated corpse dressed up as Frederick Chopin and in an anthropomorphic piano. Yep, who was dancing this. down the street, yes. and more people were not nearly as excited as we were about him. <laughs> <laughs> Seems strange, but we knew who he was. Yeah, I think that well, was I the problem. Yeah, <laughs> it's like oh my uh, god, it's Chopin. And um, another famous poll is Lech Walesa, who is a former Nobel Peace Prize winner who once applauded for me during a sorority kickball game. Oh, so. right. <laughs> <laughs> so back to radium. 
Um, After its discovery, radium was used in everything from beauty and cosmetics to household cleaning products from the 1900s through the 1930s. So radioactive makeup products, uh, much like this cream that I have obviously (laughs) liberally applied to my face, um, sought to energize the skin and make it more youthful. And one of the first mainstream brands of radioactive beauty treatments was called Thoradia. It was a French line of skin creams, cosmetics, and toothpaste, which contained both thorium chloride and radium bromide. And the tagline on it says that it was invented by Alfred Curie, who was not Not a relation of Pierre and Marie. And so people are either like, oh, well, it was just a happy coincidence that that was his last Mm. name. And so when people would see this like radium products, they would they would be like, oh, well, if the Curies say that it's good, then great. (laughs) I'm going to brush my teeth with radioactive material. Yep. And it looked great until your bones started to fall out of your body. Um, so the magic of radium spread to what we know today as the radium girls. So these, they're the collective name is the radium girls. These were female factory workers who contracted radiation poisoning from painting watch dials with self-luminous paint from the 1910s through the 1930s. So the women in each of these facilities under U.S. radium, they were told that the paint was harmless and they subsequently ingested deadly amounts of radium after being instructed to point their brushes on their lips in order to give them a fine point. So mm-hmm. they would be painting the numbers and then, you know, the brush would kind of get mushy and yeah. then they would Ugh. dip it in between their lips to oh, bring God. it back to a fine point and then dip it back into the paint and back onto oh. the watch. Um, so some of these women also painted their fingernails, face and teeth with radium so they would oh. glow. And they were instructed to point their brushes because using rags or a water rinse caused them to waste too much time and too much of the material made from powdered radium, gum arabic, and water that adhered the radium to the watch dials. So um, like the guys in charge and the scientists behind the U.S. Radium Corporation were kind of the worst. Um, (laughs) They knew very well that the watch face's key ingredient was approximately one million times more active than uranium. What? And the bigwigs of the company were careful to avoid any exposure to it themselves. So while their young female factory workers were literally encouraged to swallow radium (gasps) on a daily basis, the owners and the chemists were using lead screens, masks, and tongs to handle the radium. Get out of here. It's it's bad. That's terrible. So um, radiation sickness, um, many of the women began to suffer from anemia, bone fractures, and necrosis of the jaw, a condition now known as radium jaw. Um, Radium, it's a close cousin of the element calcium. Both are alkaline earth metals with cubic crystalline structures. So when a person ingests radium, it is dealt with in the body similar to calcium. So, But where calcium is deposited into bones and strengthens the mineral content, radium does the opposite. It bombards the bones with alpha radiation, blowing tiny holes into the skeletal material. And nothing removes it until it burns itself out. So these women were literally like... They would be exposed to this. They were ingesting radium. It was getting into their bones. And then all of a sudden they'd go to like bite on an apple and their jaw (gasps) would just like fracture. Oh my God. Or they would be walking down the street and all of a sudden their hips would no longer be holding a leg in their socket. Oh my God. They were just, they were just like falling apart from the inside. Yeah, they were like being eaten from the inside out. Exactly. Oh my God. So these women started dying and dozens were extremely ill with crumbling bones. And by the time a lawyer had agreed to rep five of the women against US radium, the company's lawyers claimed that the statute of limitations had run out on the plaintiff's (gasps) injuries. They said if they had gotten sick or, or injured while exposed to radium, they should have sued then, not now, years after they no longer worked there. Oh my gosh. Uh, But thankfully, the burgeoning forensics department in New York City provided evidence that radium exposure inflicted a lifetime of harm and the court went ahead with the trial but the company settled out of court and these women basically just got enough money to cover their funeral expenses (gasps) it was awful that's terrible um, there are a lot of really good books on this topic um, and I got a lot of um, great information again from Deborah Bloom's The Poisoner's Handbook um, that talks about this a little more in depth and how the forensics department kind of helped to like solidify their their claims yeah um so as a result of like this litigation and stuff this also has impacted some um like labor laws and (laughs) oh my gosh so it's yeah um so one last thing 
Marie Curie's radioactive papers. <laughs> okay. So uh, her notebooks, clothing, furniture, and pretty much everything that survived from her Parisian suburban house is radioactive and will be for the next 1500 years. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I had no idea. I mean, I guess it makes sense, yeah. but I had absolutely no idea. Yeah. That's so weird. So what are they doing with them? Well, um, they are, a lot of her papers are at the Bibliothèque Nationale in France. Um, if you want to look at her manuscripts, you have to sign a liability waiver. What? And then you have, you know, hand, special handling equipment and the notes are sealed in a lead-lined box. Wow. Wow, she must have kept a lot of radiation with her. <laughs> Plus, also, if she was exposed to it on a daily basis, like it was just like part Coming out of, of her. her. Yeah. And that was one of the things with the radium girls, too, is they were saying that when the radium is in your body and it gets into your bones, it comes back out of your body as radon gas. So they were then Stop like exhaling it. radon gas in addition to the radium just like going crazy inside their bones, Get too. So Marie here. must have been like breathing radon onto all of her effects everything, for like everything in years. her house yeah um so what about her daughters did they ever experience any like side effects from that um iren died um in of leukemia oh, no. and they said that she was probably one of the first um cases of polonium poisoning <gasps> because a vial of that broke in her laboratory oh, and no. then she started to get sick after that yeah. and um i don't know what if died of okay but no, I think she she was not in science. So Oh yeah, so she like yeah. she wasn't like continually but both exposed Frederick to it. and Irene who are dealing with like radioactive stuff, they both died kind of early too. Oh so Oh gosh. Yeah. Stay away from that radiation, guys. Yeah. Don't be a put hero. Put on your protection. Yeah, put on those heavy gloves. Put on your eye protection. <laughs> be smart, you know? Don't be like Marie Curie. No, I shouldn't say that. She was a brilliant, wonderful be woman. Be just like Marie Curie, but wear protection. Yes. Be smarter about touching radiation. <laughs> that's amazing a lot of a lot of interesting stuff in her life definitely. that is so cool the only i didn't know a lot about marie curie before you told mm-hmm. me about this stuff except the whole i mean i knew about like she worked with radiation she mm-hmm. was married to pierre and the only time the only things that i really like have that i remember about her aren't even really about her is kate beaton she's a history cartoonist mm-hmm. out of uh canada and she's hysterical she does great little like history and literature cartoons but she has this cartoon of just Marie and Pierre and like a loving embrace with like hearts around them. And it says, is it love or is it radiation? Maybe it's both. Oh, it, it probably was. That was a really true cartoon. Yeah, it's lovely. I'll have to show it to you. <laughs> and then um, if you ever saw the, the MTV one season TV show clone high, oh, which I yeah. highly recommend looking it up. <laughs> Um, it's basically like the premises, famous people from history were recloned as teenagers and now they all live in a high school called clone high. Uh, <laughs> there was Marie Curie was a character, but she was like nine and a half feet tall and had one giant <laughs> eye and like one tiny eye. And she had a really high voice like this, like, Hey guys. Um, because her DNA had been completely oh, mutated by the radiation. It was kind of a cute little, yeah, I've seen some clone high, but I can't, I can't remember seeing Marie in it, but I'll have to, yeah, she was like a out. secondary character, like the, um, there's also the Elvis twins. So there's like a young hot Elvis and then there's like a 1970s fat Elvis. <laughs> and there's a, there's a John F. Kennedy. Yeah. Yes. And he's dating Cleopatra, but, but Abe Lincoln is in love with her. Yep. And yep. Joan of Arc is in love with Abe. It's very good. <laughs> it's a great show. It's I really too recommend. bad that they canceled clone high and instead put on like my 16 year old pregnant friend. I know, right. Oh my gosh. Meanwhile, South Park has been on TV for 55 years. <laughs> Well, um, kind of speaking of cartoons, okay, we are at the point where we're going to do a quiz. Yes. So this quiz is titled, That's Radioactive, Man. This is a quiz on things that glow and that one episode of The Simpsons. <laughs> Question one. Radioactive Man has a young sidekick whose name later was appropriated by what pop punk band from Chicago whose best-selling album was 2005's From Under the Cork Tree? Question two. Laundry detergents containing optical brighteners can be used as an invisible ink when the paper containing the invisible message is revealed by using what type of light? Question three. Mo the bartender reveals that he was formerly a cast member of the Little Rascals, whose main bit was looking in a tailpipe and getting a face full of soot. Which famous author of Absalom Absalom did Mo say could write an exhaust pipe gag that would really make you think? 
Question four. This is multiple choice. What substance that absorbs energy from light is typically used in the manufacture of consumer-grade glow-in-the-dark plastics? Is it A, phosphor, B, chlorophyll, or C, filament? Question five. In the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles universe, what is the name of the glowing green ooze that plays a key role in the origin story of the turtles? Question six. The production and emission of light by a living organism, such as a firefly or jellyfish, is known by what term? Question seven. When Milhouse, who is chosen as the superhero's sidekick, runs away from the movie set, Bart checks several places for him. One of these random locations is a factory for what creative geometrical toy brought to the US by Kenner in 1967? Question eight. We got three true or false questions about toys that glow. First statement. When Frisbee released its night lighter flying disc in 1978, it advised users to hold the Frisbee over an open flame on the stovetop for 10 seconds for best results. Second statement. The original Lightbrite reached the market in 1922 using three large candles to light the panel, which held pegs made of colored glass. Statement three. The Glowworm, that snuggly light-up plush toy you might have had in the 1980s, went on to star in a television series called The Glow Friends. Question 9. Which former child actor and vaudevillian, whose first wife of many was actress Ava Gardner, tries to convince Milhouse to come back to the Radioactive Man film, only to then try to step in and take the sidekick part for himself? And finally, question 10. What is the name of the 1990s Nickelodeon game show where kids would compete in physical challenges for a chance to climb the 28-foot-tall giant mountain and win a glowing piece of the aggro crag? We'll give you a bit about a minute to think, and then we'll be back with the answers. I don't know if I, you know what, and I knew Rebecca. some of these. I feel like I should know some of these. I might embarrass myself. We'll see. It's okay. Um, I'm not a big Simpsons, um, a big Simpsons head. Neither am I. Uh, but this particular episode was pretty funny and okay. we tried to make it accessible even if you haven't seen this episode. So okay. I had a little help from Tallboy Productions on, on the question writing with the, with the Simpsons ones. Good, good. So the first question, um, Radioactive Man has a young sidekick who's name was later appropriated by what pop punk band from chicago a fallout boy it is fallout oh boy. Good. yeah um that i think has has come up before so it's oh, just okay. like a nice little nice little fact about little where this where this band actually got its name because there are so many band names out there that you're like what, what the, the hell, hell is that <laughs> <laughs> all right uh question two laundry detergents containing optical brighteners can be used as an invisible ink when revealed by using what type of light i'm gonna say that's a uv light or it black light is ultraviolet light so um the chemical compounds in optical brighteners absorb light in the ultraviolet and they re-emit it as blue fluorescent light which oh, is why okay. you can see it under uv light nice uh, question three, Mo the bartender uh, used to be part of the Little Rascals. Uh, which famous author of Absalom, Absalom did Mo say could write an exhaust pipe gag that would really make you think? And this is really taxing my English mm -hmm. major past, but I cannot remember who wrote Absalom, Absalom. It's William Faulkner, <laughs> which is like, that's why that, that 
particular segment is so, so weird, weird and funny. <laughs> um, question four, uh, what substance that absorbs energy from light is typically used in the manufacture of consumer grade glow in the dark plastics? Is it A, phosphor, B, chlorophyll, or C, filament? I'm going to go with phosphor. A. It is phosphor. Yes. Um, phosphor is a substance that exhibits the phenomenon of luminescence. Nice. Great. Everybody's doing great. Uh, (laughs) Question five. In the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles universe, what is the name of the glowing green ooze that plays a key role in the origin story of the turtles? I... I do not it's know okay. this. It is called mutagen. Mutagen. Mm-hmm. Oh. It changes the genetic structure of all organisms that come into contact with it. Well, how come? How did those turtles get uh, get into it? Well, they were they got sent down to the sewer when they were little little baby turtles, and they accidentally stepped in some mutagen. But why were they sent to the sewers? Like they, you know, they were some pet that someone was like, we can't have this pet. Anymore. Oh, okay. So they put them in the sewers. Yeah. You See, know. I I know so little about ah. teenage mutant ninja turtles. I'm so sorry. Uh, quick plug: the Strong Museum has a <laughs> has a fall exhibit on teenage mutant ninja turtles: the secret of the sewer Ooh. that just opened this past weekend. Uh, it is really cool. Is it? It's um. By the Children's Museum in Minnesota, I think. Oh, okay. Is the, is the producer of the exhibit. It's great. Okay, I'll have to go and see. I had no idea. Yeah. That's so interesting. It's You've been fun. holding out on me, Julia. Yeah, you know. <laughs> uh, question six. The production and emission of light by a living organism, such as a firefly or jellyfish, is known by what term? That is called bioluminescence. Yes, it is. This girl over here works at a science museum. Hello. What up, what up? Um, so scientists have been doing experiments with bioluminescence for a long time. They've been using firefly enzymes mm. and kind of mixing them with all kinds of things and see what happens cool so um making plants glow has been possible since the 1980s um they added a gene encoding the firefly enzyme luciferase to a Mm. tobacco plant and when sprayed with a chemical substrate luciferin the plant glowed temporarily and in 2010 another group engineered a tobacco plant to have its own weak glow using bacterial genes instead so like the like the 2010 plant like if it's dark out, there's a plant kind of glowing out there How in the field weird. because they have scienced it. <laughs> um, what a weird thing. Yeah. So question seven, when Milhouse, who was chosen um, to be Fall Out Boy in the Radioactive Man mm. movie, um, when he runs away from the set, Bart checks several places for him. One of these random locations is a factory for what creative geometrical toy brought to the U.S. by Kenner in 1967? Is that a Rubik's Cube? It is a spirograph. <gasps> Oh, yeah. different geometric. Yeah. Rubik's Cube was the 1980s. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, just so, you know, FYI. Um, three true or false questions about toys that glow. So the oh, first boy. one, uh, when Frisbee released its night lighter flying disc in 1978, it advised users to hold the Frisbee over an open flame on the stovetop for 10 seconds for best results. I'm going to say true because that just sounds weird enough. <laughs> it's false. Oh, okay. <laughs> All you had to do was hold it in the beam of a flashlight or household light bulb for just a few seconds. Good. No flames required. <laughs> Fantastic. Good. I'm relieved. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the second one. Uh, the original light bright reached the market in 1922 using three large candles to light the panel, which held pegs made of colored glass. Uh, I'm going to say true. That one is also false. Oh, Lightbright came out in 1967 and used a light bulb with translucent plastic pegs. Again, I am thrilled that I'm wrong and that there weren't open <laughs> flames involved in this toy. <laughs> and then uh, the last one, uh, Glowworm, that snugly light up plush toy you might have had in the 1980s, went on to star in a television series called The Glow Friends. Okay, now I'm just going to keep, I'm going to roll the dice on this one. I'm going to say that this one is true this one is true okay so similar to how almost every major toy line for children in the 1980s had its own cartoon show the glow friends appeared as a segment during my little pony and in a fun coincidence the character baby glowworm was voiced by none other than nancy cartwright who was the voice of bart simpson how funny coincidence um question nine which former child actor and vaudevillian whose first wife of many was actress ava gardner tries to convince millhouse to come back to the radioactive man film only the then to try to step in and take the sidekick part for himself um i was going to say charlie chaplin but that doesn't that the dates don't line yeah. up so i have no idea uh it's mickey rooney <gasps> oh right, so, right. Um, he was married to ava gardner he was married eight times Yeah, he must have had just a fabulous personality (laughs) because he was not a looker. Well, um, 
he appeared in more than 300 films. He was one of the last surviving stars of the silent film era. Um, he died in 2014. I and remember. at his death, Vanity Fair called him the original Hollywood train wreck. <laughs> he was like addicted to sleeping yeah. pills. And like he was an alcoholic. And he He's married you know, eight times. times. And like, then his last wife, I think like, I might be, I might be thinking of somebody else, but she like exploited him and like, oh took all his money and like would like he was very sick and she would like wheel him into another room i could be oh, wrong boy this might be someone completely different is it casey so. Kasem thinking about oh maybe it was casey Kasem. maybe that's what i'm thinking of because he was married to like that blonde lady with who was in the <laughs> ghostbusters film oh yeah she was I in the ghostbusters film she had a bit part she's very Man. tall and blonde yeah I remember that they were like hiding Casey Kasem yes. like in his last days. Like we didn't know if he was still alive okay, or yes. gone or not. You're right. I'm thinking of Casey Kasem, not Mickey Rooney. Forgive me, Mickey Rooney's estate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And the last question. Um, what is the name of the 1990s Nickelodeon game show where kids would compete in physical challenges to climb a mountain and win the glowing piece of the aggro crag? I feel terrible. I cannot remember. Oh, I know. I used to watch it all the time. It's guts. Guts. Do, 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 do you have it oh my gosh and i was really excited because in that last question with that answer i referred to two of our previous episodes i know good. i'm so sorry it's okay good job thank you my sister and i used to watch it all the time and i had like a love-hate relationship <sighs> with it because it was like sports and i really oh, wasn't okay. that interested in sports but it's still on nickelodeon which yeah. is like my favorite tv all the nickelodeon station. 1990s that's oh. that's my peak tv yeah just <laughs> chef's kiss on all of those <laughs> I say. <laughs> well, uh, that's my quiz on things that glow and awesome. that radioactive man episode of The Simpsons. I learned so much I'm today. I'm so glad. Thank you so much so for doing that. So we hope the rest of you learned some stuff today too. Um, you can find us on iTunes, on Google Play, and on Stitcher or whatever podcast app you like using our RSS feed. Yep. Please, um, please uh, subscribe, rate, and review us on Ooh. any of those platforms. We would love that. Uh, you can also reach us on Twitter at Miss Infopod. We have a website, MissInfopod.com. And um, you can also email us if you, if you want. Yeah. Um, at Miss Infopod at gmail.com. Oh, perfect. So you know, how to, you know how to get us. We're very gettable. We're <laughs> <laughs> I might go upstairs and wash this radium Please off do that. of my face. I think I, th- I, think I see your skin <laughs> pulling away from your, f- your flesh. So <laughs> stay tuned. Please do that. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time. Yep. Bye. Bye.